Give holiday gifts that make a positive impact on our planet. Whether it's trees planted in honor of your loved ones, eco-friendly apparel, or holiday cards that plant a tree, gifts from the Arbor Day Foundation will live on for generations. Place your order to make a greener world at arborday.org slash greatgifts. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. We're all familiar with the news about Brexit. A deadline was set and then extended. Theresa May did a weird robot dance and then had all of her deals to leave the EU rejected. Boris Johnson tried to get the Queen involved. Some MPs exchanged some sick disses on the floor of the House of Commons. It's incomprehensible and unending because Brexit is at once something that always has some insane minute-by-minute drama associated with it. And then, without fail, nothing happens. This episode attempts to get us beyond a sense of impending doom and the facile media narratives around Brexit. I was joined by Ashley Smith, a socialist writer and activist in Burlington, Vermont, as well as David Renton, a barrister, historian, and longstanding anti-fascist activist James Foley, a postdoctoral researcher at Glasgow Caledonian University and the author of a forthcoming book on Scottish independence, Cat Boyd, a trade union organizer in Glasgow, and Richard Seymour, a founding editor of Salvage magazine and the author of The Twittering Machine. We discuss Scottish independence, the status of immigrants currently in the UK, the larger geopolitical implications of the potential breakup of Britain, and much more. Richard, I'll start with you. In what ways did the political consensus championed by New Labour and then by David Cameron create the conditions for Brexit? Oh, well, I mean, uh, in a way, it's all been very calm here um, and uh, uh, very difficult to uh, discern any major change except for the fact that everything is collapsing. I suppose the one major um, uh, contribution that New Labour made, apart from the fact that its um, economic model predicated on city uh, financialization, which would generate this uh, sort of tax surplus from which they would fund their social spending, all of that stuff collapsed in 2008. Um, but the major contribution I think they made to this was that uh, in order to triangulate the Conservatives, um, they uh, adopted a strong form of nationalism. It wasn't nationalism of the Brexit Party type, it wasn't nationalism of the Boris Johnson type, but it was certainly a, a sort of agenda for Britishness and it involved um, sort of directing integrationist uh, uh, discourses at migrants and at uh, Britain's minorities in sometimes quite a brutal way. Um, they also, of course, ratcheted up the tension over the war on terror, uh, penalising the Muslim community, um, uh, taking part in uh, extraditions, uh, extraordinary renditions. Um, there were some notorious police shootings in that context. And the um, sort of racial tension actually rose during that period. So it's important really to um, see how that's, you know, that that's not something that just happened in 2016 these ideas and ideologies were boiling over and they were really rooted to some degree uh, in the political economy of New Labour because what you, what you saw 
was that far-right political challengers to the Labour Party in local constituencies, usually working-class constituencies that have been run by Labour for a long, long time, where there was a lot of uh, social breakdown, uh, manufacturing was being allowed to rot, new Labour deliberately let that happen. Um, and there was a lot of social discontent over the um, sort of struggle for scarce resources in local councils. And the far right was able to present this as a racial question, as a question of authentic local people, as they would put it, having access to these resources. And within that, these ideas about nation and belonging and entitlement started to sediment themselves so that uh, you saw these um, right-wing movements, which were the precursors of, uh, you know, today's Farageites, the sort of um, Brexit party, previously UKIP and so on, is beginning to take root then. So I think that's the um, crucial thing to recognise here. It's the way in which uh, race and nation have been woven into a story about political economy, and New Labour prepared a lot of the ground for that. This is Ashley. I wanted to ask uh, a follow-up question about how the left and right map on to this to the question of Brexit. Because in in the U.S. and Canada, I think a lot of people think that it's a simple left-right question, um, and it's more complicated than that. So, Richard, I was interested in you fleshing that out a little bit more. And David, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it as well. Well, clearly, it is complicated because there has always been a right-wing pro-Europeanism. Um, and we see that in the Conservative Party and particularly in those splitting away. Um, equally, uh, there has been historically, there isn't very much of it today, but uh, there has been historically a left-wing critique of the European project. Um, and, you know, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn would once have been affiliated with that. Um, certainly there are elements of the trade unions, um, the, the sort of more left-wing elements who still have some form of affiliation to that. Now, it's complicated in, a, in another way too, actually, because one of the things that uh, is involved here is the idea, uh, on certain parts of the sort of legs it left, the idea that we can restore a form of national capitalism that existed roughly between uh, 1945 and the late 70s. Um, and I don't think that that um, is, is ever going to come back. But, you know, certainly that's, uh, you know, the idea that we can reclaim these instruments of national policy control and restore some elements of democracy and class justice based on that, uh, free the nation state from the entanglements of an undemocratic, um, sort of politically centralised uh, and very increasingly neoliberal European Union. So it, those are the ways in which it's complicated. The other sense in which it's complicated, I'll just finish on this, is that there are different degrees of commitment to one view or other on Brexit. I think that you would find that the right cares a lot more about the national question in this sense than the left. The left has been much more um, divided over how far to go along with Brexit, much more divided over how much it really cares about the specific national framework or settlement. So there is certainly a sort of left-right split. Most of the left is broadly remained, but it's it's complicated, as you say. Yeah, no, I mean, I'd, I'd agree with everything Richard said. Perhaps only two things I'd add to it. Um, first is, I think, while, while, while it's worth acknowledging the complexity, it's also worth acknowledging the simplicity as well. Um, you know, we're talking here about um, Brexit originates as a project in the early 1990s, essentially by people who identified 
with Margaret Thatcher, who'd just been removed as Prime Minister. They'd given up as the Conservative Party as the vehicle to achieve their um, programme of privatisation, etc. They set up, um, you know, what's now the Brexit Party, what what before that was UKIP, essentially as a right-wing project to um, take on and shrink um, the state. That's why, for example, if, if you know, look in the last few days, you've had Donald Trump giving as much support as he can to Nigel Farage, even though Nigel Farage here doesn't feel like he represents anything. It's extremely unlikely, for example, in the next election that he'll actually end up winning any seats. But but Trump's willing to boost him because Trump sees an affinity between that kind of way of doing right-wing politics and his own way of right-wing doing politics. So there's an element to which it's complicated, but there's also an element towards actually this is simple. Um, a lot of what what um, Brexit um, right-wing politics is about just is um, the general you know, right-wing politics of the moment that's doing well in America and Brazil and so on. Despite their hatred for uh, internationalism, this is a truly an international collaboration. And Farage appeared at the Republican National Convention when Trump was anointed the candidate. And there's also a lot of communication between Farage and people like Steve Bannon. I mean, Steve Bannon is receded to the shadows, but... So Johnson's Brexit deal seems like the worst possible one for the left and a godsend for neoliberal austerity and deregulation, which is, again, part of the new labor project. What are the terms of it and what impact would it have on migrants, unions and social welfare benefits? Well, I mean, it's going to be very differential between those groups. Um, It's not the same process. It's not felt evenly across all of them. But if, if you start off... The simplest one would be, say, social welfare, um, um, people who receive benefits. Um, for people in that situation, actually, Brexit isn't directly going to see a significant change in, in their living standards. The, the way Brexit will impact on them is, is if, for example, uh, the right is able to use Brexit um, to to use it to kind of hegemonise politics, become a dominant force in politics over the next 5, 10, 15 years in some way that Thatcher did after 1979, that British right will, in British political terms, um, undoubtedly continue to shrink welfare. But but that's not really at stake in the issue. It's not directly in stake. It's more it comes in indirectly through, in a sense, the Conservatives' attempts to um, establish hegemony. It's similar, actually, if you talk about trade unions. Um, we could go through all the different ways in which um, membership of the European Union provides a um, thin, often paper-thin, um, protection to certain groups of people. But again, that's not really relevant from the perspective of trade unions. That you know, For example, if you look at EU law, there's just no meaningful sense at all in which EU law um, protects um, British workers to strike more than UK um, law, which doesn't protect workers' rights to strike. I mean, there is a minimal difference to which towards which um eu law is is more helpful but it's minimal um there's a sense in which um if for example brexit comes in and and we see trade deals between the uk and the us that those would start to um have an impact on labor law in general and now i'm not talking about the law of trade unions i'm talking about what trade unions do in the workplace which is representing people um protecting right. people against dismissal and discrimination um over time, um, post-Brexit, um, Boris Johnson's deal would see a divergence between UK and EU law, and that divergence would be in the direction of stripping away workers' rights in that situation. But again, you know, um, 
a lot of this is undecided and it, it's not even clear particularly at the moment what the mechanism would be to do that. The one set of people you've mentioned um, who really have the most to fear from Brexit and which Brexit are migrant workers. Um, and their situation is, is sort of radically different from the other groups you talked about in that, you know, the others are talking about a long term and political threat, which is fundamentally about British politics and the way Brexit would change British politics. In terms of migrant workers, it's different. And I have to, I have to go through this in some detail because it will seem strange to um, US listeners. Um, the first basic point is, is what what Brexit deal are we going to get? Um, if we get um, a negotiated deal either between um, Corbyn and Johnson with the EU and it's in the terms which have been published, then it's pretty... And, and that is the most likely outcome at the moment. Um, if that happens, then the chances are that um, migrant workers in the UK who've been here um, for a period of time or who are here by 2020 essentially will have more or less the same rights as they do at the moment. So there's a quite good future out there, and that quite good future may well be the future we get to. Um, there's a, a terrible future out there, which is if Britain leaves the EU without a deal. And if that happened, then migrant workers would have effectively no status, no rights in the UK, and would be subject to effectively um, immediate deportation, save, of course, that the government would be unlikely to do that for everyone all at once, because that would be disorderly and chaotic and look bad. So it would be slower, but people would have lost any rights at all. To try and finesse the kind of radical difference between those two scenarios is what, what the government's done in the short term is introduce this weird thing called settled status, which actually doesn't give migrants any rights at all, but it's simply about enabling the government to do whichever of those policies it ends up doing. So people, you have to apply on a particular kind of mobile phone. You never get a letter confirming that you've got settled status. You just get something on your screen saying you've got settled status. No one knows what settled status means. It certainly doesn't mean, for example, that you have an indefinite right to stay here. All it means is the government acknowledges that you're an EU migrant who's been here for some time. And at present, the number of people who are applying that for it, um, about somewhere between 5 and 6 out of 10 are getting it, and somewhere between 4 and 5 out of 10 aren't getting it. So they're being told, even this non-status, this shadow existence, you're not even getting that. Um, we do have Know Your Name, and if you continue sending your, your bills and all sorts of ID on, on a rolling basis, we may um, acknowledge your status in the future. So there's this really extraordinary situation for, for, for migrants in that... Almost no one in British politics is actually saying that they want to deport three or four million people um, from Britain back to the EU. But on the other hand, people being left, and now for, for several years since the referendum, in a complete status of utter draining uncertainty, um, which will only be resolved whenever a deal's done, whatever that deal is. So um, that, that has a real sinking effect on people's lives. And it also, in a sense, it, it drains... Um, it drains a lot of the institutions which then try to represent migrant workers because if you're a trade union and lots of your members are migrant workers, you're thinking, you know, can I say to people with good faith, you know, you're definitely still going to be allowed to be here in two or three years' time. You know, it has an impact on all sorts of campaigns. It's been extremely negative and, and frankly, you know, we as civil society, the left, whatever, we've been relatively weak and in effect uh, challenging what's been a, a really negative process for millions and millions of people. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing is it's almost psychic warfare, right? Where yeah. you have this thing hanging over your head. You have this mysterious status to be determined. 
noting the effects of austerity, not only cutting social welfare benefits, all this stuff has had just a completely detrimental effect on the health, physical and otherwise of the British people. Yeah, so. definitely. Well, just uh, I, I want to look at the question more broadly than uh, Scotland uh, to begin with. I mean, first of all, I would say that it is a bad deal. It's certainly not the deal we're looking at. When you look at the fact that the neoliberal uh, European Union leaders, the neoliberal elements of the Conservative Party, and the neoliberal elements of British business, the CBI, and so on and so forth, are all behind it, it's not the sort of thing, obviously, uh, that we would necessarily um, support. Oddly enough, it didn't get the support of Donald Trump, uh, which was quite unexpected to me, but nonetheless, um, I think it's a bad deal all round. But I would maybe um, just uh, caution on some questions. I think this has already been partly covered. But just to the essay, there was an excellent article the other day in terms of workers' rights um, by Larry Elliott of The Guardian, just reinforcing the fact that the best of the rights that he actually won working class uh, in the United Kingdom came prior to our membership of the EU. By contrast, the worst of what has happened to us in terms of worker, uh, workers' rights has happened subsequent to our membership of the European Union. Now, that's not to say that the EU caused that situation to happen, of course, and that's not what I'm arguing. But what I would say is, number one, the EU didn't stop much uh, of those kind of uh, reforms that happened or counter-reforms that happened under Thatcherism and Blairism. And secondly, I think more insidiously, what happened is the elements of the trade union movement and what you might call the liberal left in this country started to see transnational laws and entities as being the one thing that could protect workers rather than winning democratic votes or winning things at the level of the workplace. I think that's a large explanation for why centre-left was so easily incorporated into the neoliberal structures that started to emerge in the 90s. If you think of Clintonism, Schroederism, Blairism, and so on and so forth. So I kind of try to caution against this uh, dichotomy that we get in terms of the left-right presentation of this debate. Similarly, I mean, I work in terms of, uh, I mean, I need to be quite cautious about what I say because I do heavy work in the field of EU migration policy. But the idea that the EU is some sort of cosmopolitan uh, entity that is, is a lovely situation for migrants, frankly, fills me with horror. There are thousands of people dead in the Mediterranean Sea. The EU uh, has just elected a commissioner for the European way of life to uh, look at the question of migration on a continental level. Frankly, if Donald Trump was elected a commissioner for the American way of life, we would all be up in arms, and quite rightly so. I mean, as I think Neil Davison quite rightly pointed out in your interview with him, uh, the EU is fundamentally a racist institution, which does not, of course, excuse anything to do with the British state. As you know, I want to break up the British state uh, as a supporter of Scottish independence, but that is not my intention. But I just want to complicate this debate uh, a little bit. I think the theme that has happened in the last couple of years is that we've had essentially something rather similar to the cultural awards that you have in America, um, a sort of liberalism versus conservatism, that has meant that people have ended up increasingly, they, they take one extreme position or the other when it comes to the European Union, rather than looking at it with all of its nuances. The People's Vote campaign, I think, has been a disaster for the Jeremy Corbyn movement, which has been one of the most progressive things to happen in the history 
of British politics. And frankly, I can't just, I just think of the wasted opportunity that we had to have a proper debate about neoliberal globalisation and the state's role within it. If it had been up to me, we would have had probably a debate in terms of social democrats supporting a soft Brexit with the protections of the European Union and so forth. And then maybe people of a more harder left perspective talking about a total break from all of the institutions of the European Union as being forms of neoliberal globalisation. That, that debate was never allowed to happen. Um, I think we'd be in a much stronger position if it had been allowed to happen. Um, but we're in the situation we're in, and I guess we have to try and make the best of it by kicking Boris Johnson out. As, as uh, that's, that obviously raises a follow-up question, which is um, the political reaction to both Johnson's Brexit deal by the various parties, the Tories, Labour, the Scottish National Party, Sinn Féin, and the DUP. Um, yeah. How, how have they responded to Johnson's deal, and what how how is also the far right responded to it brexit and further to the the brexit party and further to the right and then how is this going to play off play out in the upcoming election because clearly there's going to be a battle of narratives in the election on the one hand johnson will want to make it all about brexit and on the other hand corbyn and labor will want to pose it as class against austerity, class solidarity against austerity. Um, so what do what do you, James, and, and Kat, if she's in on the call, I'd be very curious to hear both of your responses as well as Richard. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I would probably distinguish between Corbyn and Labour there because there are elements of the Labour Party that would like this all to be about Brexit. But I'll come on to that in a second. I mean, the first point to start with is if you look at the odds, they don't look great um, for a uh, Corbyn victory right The latest I saw was that there is a more than 50% likelihood of a uh, Conservative uh, majority being what we end up with in December. Obviously, you can caution against that by saying, well, polls have been wrong so many times recently. Um, nonetheless, I would say if Labour had been clever, they would have taken the election they were offered back in September. Corbyn wanted to do so. The right wing of Labour stopped him from doing so. At that point, Johnson was on the ropes. And I think they would have had a much stronger chance of being able to beat him. In terms of the reaction, in Scotland, being quite honest, most people are largely um, not supportive of the EU, they're opposed to Brexit here. The reality is the vast majority of seats here are going to go to the Scottish Nationalists. Um, if not, I mean, it'll be nearly all of them, I would imagine, go to the SNP. England, I think, is a much more dynamic and interesting sort of political situation. Essentially, you do have two big blocks, Leave and Remain, uh, there. Um, in terms of the Leave vote, Johnson, uh, thanks to, I think, the dithering of the Labour Party, has put himself in rather a strong position to be able to capture much of the Leave vote that had abandoned them under uh, uh, Theresa May and under the beginning of his premiership. The situation, though, is complicated for him, and I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that he'll be able to hold that together. And it'll depend largely on what the Brexit party chooses to do, um, because on the one hand, they are decidedly opposed to the um, Johnson deal that he has struck for quite understandable reasons in some cases. On the other hand, if they are fingered as the people that handed the initiative to Jeremy Corbyn, 
and gave power to the Remainers and so on and so forth because they stood in too many seats. And that won't look very good for Nigel Farage either. So there's quite a dynamic situation still, I think, on the Leave side. On the Remain side, it's a sad fact of life that I don't think Corbyn is in a position to capture much of the Labour voters that have abandoned him over the issue of uh, Europe uh, to the Leave side. So the question is, well, how is that Remain vote going to play out? At the moment, much of it is going to the Liberal Democrats, much of the sort of professional managerial class type vote. Um, now, I don't think... I don't think they're going to come over to Corbyn due to love of Corbyn. Right? That is the situation that we have. But I think what might happen is that is a, a critical mass of people start moving towards uh, the Labour Party, then there is a chance that they will feel compelled to vote tactically for Labour rather than to hold out for a protest vote for the Liberals. Under those circumstances, a Corbyn victory starts to look more realistic uh, in terms of how this might play out. I think Corbyn has actually made a good start. I mean, he uh, you're right to say that he has focused on billionaires, economic inequality. There are huge inequalities in society, and Corbyn is the one that's talking about them. And he is challenging what is quite rightly seen as the elitism of the Tory in a Brexit bloc, as well as the rest of the sort of, I mean, to be absolutely frank, the bulk of capitalist opinion, billionaire opinion, is uh, fully in favour of the EU. He's, take, he's, he's going beyond the Brexit question to challenge the fundamentals of economic inequality. And all the evidence suggests there's a vast constituency of people out there who are responsive to those ideas, if he can get them across. I think the real thing that he needs to do is, or, or I think that he is doing correctly, is that this will fire up his base. And he needs the base of activists to go out there and campaign. And if he can start pulling the numbers around and the, and the Conservatives start losing votes to the Brexit party and so on, there is a chance that much of the Liberal Democrat vote will crumble and will return to a situation quite similar to 2017 in which uh, people united behind Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. I still don't rule out that possibility. And I think, as I said, he has made a good start. And Trump's attack on Boris Johnson's uh, <laughs> on Boris Johnson's deal didn't do him any harm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so funny seeing that conflict because it's like, well, didn't you, Boris Johnson? Didn't you steal that your whole shtick from Trump? Like you're you wear the terrible suit, your hair is a mess, you kind of look like you just rolled out of bed, like. You act like a giant dumbass, but yet yeah, you're a rich guy. <laughs> Elba, <yeah. laughs> I think there was a bunch of people who were waiting for Boris Johnson's Twitter to get quite wild, and it just never really happened. So he's definitely been a bit of a disappointment. Yeah, you can definitely do better. I mean, I think. The Scottish perspective on the, the interceptions of like Brexit, the general election, and depends on how that all plays out, really fascinating. I mean, firstly, I think that the fact Jeremy Corbyn is still standing and he's still leader of the Labour Party in spite of everything that has been thrown at him in the media, the anti-Semitism stuff, all that, all those accusations, um, and also the attacks from within his own party. I think the testament to the, the movement that's built up around him, and particularly in 
momentum and some of his independent supporters and the flood of new young people into the party. So I think that that is, that is a really positive thing. And I don't think we can underestimate the amount of pressure that's been applied to Corbyn's leadership and his core team and to start with. Um, and, you know, I've n- I mean, this is it's quite a fascinating election for me personally. I've never particularly been excited by a Westminster election like this before. Um, I think that there's a lot of people in Scotland who are really underestimating the pull of that Corbyn message. When I woke up yesterday morning, the news bulletin was Jeremy Corbyn is going to take on the rich, he's going to take on the billionaire class, he's going after corrupt landlords, bad bosses, and that is a very, very appealing message to anyone in the UK. And um, there's definitely a, a bit of underestimation uh, going on. I've already in my in my job, I work in a trade union. You know, I've had already some SNP MPs who are up for re-election on the phone looking for support where it's possible. You know, people are nervous. Even those those SNP MPs who still have the course in some of those constituencies in Scotland in 2015. Those constituencies that had traditionally represented part of the, the Labour heartlands in Scotland, um, you know, the, the big switch that happened there with massive uh, majorities for SNP candidates, a lot of that was really eaten into in 2017. Um, you know, I know that there's some SNP MPs who have majorities of 20 votes, 40 votes, 100 votes, you know, it's very, very, very slim. I think that everything in politics just now is so unpredictable that really it could it could be anyone's. It could it could be anyone's. These polarizations around independence and Brexit um, are really interesting in certain constituencies of Scotland. Um, you know, I when I saw the polls yesterday as well, um, that put the there was a poll yesterday that put the Tories seventeen points ahead, Labour. I was in my office. <laughs> You know, doing a bit of a bit of drama around how bad this looks, and someone in my office who's a long-standing, long-in-the-tooth activist on the Labour left reminded me that in 2017, when Labour had that huge surge of support at the start of that election, they were about 30 points behind yeah. in the polls. So it's not just that the polls are wrong. I think that Labour always, you know, there's always starting from from a, a worse-off position. Um, I think that the main danger in, in Scotland for people like myself who are socialists and who are pro-independence but would undoubtedly like to see Corbyn in number 10 is the threat from the Liberal Democrats. And the Liberal Democrats have a, they have a different history and legacy in Scotland. Um, I think that they will, there will be a big surge in support for people who are anti-independence but very pro-European Union, which represents quite a, quite a bulk of, I would say, Scotland's upper middle classes, particularly in the north of Scotland and the And of course, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, Bill Swinton, she's in a Scottish constituency. They're big, <laughs> gonna stop. And <laughs> 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 um, they're big, you know, like. Civil War uh, historical leaders of like Charles Kennedy, people like that, who are really seen to bring the party forward in Scotland, are are you know well remembered and fondly thought of by certain aspects of the Scottish middle class. So I think there's a real danger that Scotland's vote, <laughs> that Scotland's votes might actually count for once. <laughs> <laughs> well. 
we'll we'll return to the question of Scottish independence, the Scotland question momentarily. But I wanted to talk about um, bad landlords and millionaires because British capital and especially finance has been really integrated in the EU project and therefore in the main, like not supportive of Brexit, which is why even though conservatives have, this was, this was all David Cameron's good idea. Um, they have voted against all of these different proposed deals to leave. So which sections have been against that and what impact would Brexit have on the British economy aside from probably making Jacob Rees-Mogg very rich? Well, I mean, that, that last thing about Jacob Rees-Mogg's right. I mean, the, something Richard said earlier, which I thought was spot on, was he talked about uh, new labour and city financialization, And I think that it's really useful to see Brexit through that process. I mean, I'm sure you've come across um, Thomas Piketty's writings and you've looked at the stuff that he, he's been arguing about, how the world economy works these days. And he, he, he just made that point, which is true, and it's, it's annoying, it makes you furious, but it's true. That you know, for however many years, 20, 30, 40 years, essentially, the world economy has been growing at a rate, the national economy has been growing at a rate, but the returns on capital, of just dead capital, of investment, of rent, whether that's ownership shares, whether that's ownership of houses, has been growing much, much faster than that. Now, what, what that creates is, is a dynamic for individual capitalists. You know, you know, the whole way the Tory party exists is it exists to be the, the collective apparatus for the, for the ruling class to rule. And if you go back more than 40 years ago, that meant, that meant the large employers, that meant um, the people who paid the most taxes. They were the people who you listened to. Then these days, you know, rack up to the present. You know, all the businesses got up and said, for God's sake, we don't want to have Brexit or not. No deal Brexit. Boris Johnson's response was, fuck business. To, you know, <laughs> leaders of the Conservative Party do not say that. They do not think like that. They didn't, but now they do. And where that comes from is that whole thing of financialization. There just are more and more parts of the global super rich, lots of them living in Britain, have perfectly large sums of money and have no particular buy-in to um, any particular notion of the state as a device for making sure that society is stable. They've got their money. Their money will go up in value. They can feel themselves, um, as it were, opting out of that. And, so, and therefore, you get a certain kind of individual. And you can see them if you look at the funding roles for who um, funded Trump. And you see them again at the funding roles for who funded um, the Leave vote in, in the 2016 referendum. And they're hedge fund managers. They're people who are completely separated from industrial capital. See, their sole basis is what will make us the most amount of money. And we calculate that Brexit will mean fewer taxes, fewer social infrastructure, and we'll keep a larger share of the pot. Um, that's by far the largest group within the capitalist class that's supporting the deal. But then there are, after that, there are more marginal things which, which, which seem important to us because we're stuck in the middle of it, but in, in the scheme of things aren't necessarily that important. For example, the press. We have lots and lots of our newspapers are owned by Anglo-American um, billionaires. They flip between the, the US and the UK. And Brexit, again, is very attractive because what, what it offers is the future is a possibility of trade deals with the US rather than EU, making the British economy look more like the American economy and less like the EU economy. So they're, they're the people who are, who are backing it. Um, that, they're not the majority of the capitalist class, but you know what? Actually, in most periods of history, you don't need to be a majority of the capitalist class. All mm -hmm. you have to do is you have to be able to establish the tacit consent to enough of a limited extent from everyone else. Um, and that's just one of the moments that we're in. Um, 
Obviously, by the way, none of this is to say that what we really need is the whole of the capitalist class to unite and ride over the hill to the rescue and save us all. I mean, Jesus, that was kind of what... That was the strategy of the Labour Party in, in 2016, and it didn't really help very much. Um, but in answer to the question, you know, that that's the people, and it, it's not some aberration to business. It's a serious and significant block of capital, and there's a serious project behind it. So, um, I mean, first of all, like uh, one of the dangers is that there are, are some sections of the left who do actively want British capitalism to come right to the rescue in the last minute and save them. Sadly, these are some of the most established left intellectuals. Many of the people that you'll hear from in America, on Twitter, and so on, the likes of uh, Paul Mason, who have been kind of pushing this narrative of basically suspend everything in terms of the left, and let's unite with liberal capitalism and so on and so forth. I don't like to make analogies too much with American politics. There is a degree of, you know, there are large sections of liberal opinion that just couldn't accept that they had lost legitimacy um, and that politics underneath had fundamentally uh, transformed in a way that meant that they had to completely revise their whole political outlook. Instead, after some initial talk of that sort of thing, he eventually came to the viewpoint that um, it had been a Russian conspiracy, that it had been a big business, and so on and so forth. In the UK, similarly after Brexit, there were liberals saying, well, okay, we've made big mistakes, we've fundamental economic transformation, yada, yada. This very, very quickly, though, transformed into a narrative of so-called disaster capitalism where there was a set of uh, hedge fund managers acting in coordination with Russia who were intent on shorting the British economy in order to achieve fundamental neoliberal transformation. And this kind of idea, it was responsibly part money and so on, even where these things have been fundamentally refuted, this argument has uh, continued to bubble away. And I think, you know, I think it's the wrong narrative for the left to take. I mean, it's a failure to deal with the underlying reasons why those votes have happened in the first place. There are eccentric elements, of course, of the British ruling business elite and so on that do support this and always have. But it's important to mention the fact that the Remain campaign very significantly outspent the Leave campaign because it was so significantly backed by the elements of British business, and that has continued to be the case afterwards. Of course, I think there's business now, like the CBI and so on and so forth, would like a sort of uh, a Risa May or a Boris Johnson pro-business Brexit, just get this business done, get it sorted, because the uncertainty is what's killing business now. But fundamentally, these people would rather be in the European Union because it offers an excellent deal for big business and neoliberalism and always has done. Like, and, uh, I just don't buy the narrative. I mean, I do, Jacob Rees-Mogg is an example. I just think he, I don't think it's his business interest. I think he has a very eccentric way of looking at capitalism. He's got an intellectual viewpoint that says you should never have come off the gold standard. Capitalism is about to collapse. He thinks this is all good. I mean, I, he's, a, he's a madman, right? But the fact yeah. is, he has, uh, he has emerged as a success precisely because there is no element in the mainstream of the British ruling class that is willing to capture Brexit for themselves. And that is why the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg 
have kind of entered into the picture as being significant intellectual rather than what they were previously seen as, which is completely out of touch wacko. <laughs> so, <clears throat> a lot is said about um, the class basis of Brexit and the Brexit vote and the Brexit campaign. Um, I think before we start talking about, um, you know, either the so-called left behinds, which is a bit of a myth in Britain, or um, the uh, sort of big business support for Brexit, we have to deal with the fact that there's sort of there's been a change in the composition of British capitalism over the last 40 years. And one of the big factors of the Thatcherite revolution was the um, unleashing of a certain strata of small to medium sized capital. Um, and it's largely, if you look at the businesses that are for Brexit, it's medium sized regional capital uh, that is not particularly dependent upon European markets and that finds um, such exiguous European regulations on workplace safety, labour and so on to be uh, onerous uh, for various reasons. And also, to be honest, they're inclined towards a certain kind of conspiracist view uh, condensed in um, the sort of uh, UKIP ideology or Brexit Party ideology, which is that Europe is a kind of socialist project. This is the sort of Thatcher's late view that uh, it basically amounts to the EU SSR. <laughs> it has its own ruble, etc. Um, it, I mean, as your laughter is well placed, but um, this is actually, you know, this is a view that started out on the margins. Um, I can't tell you how minor minoritarian this view was back in 1992, but it has spread. Now, therefore, I would suggest. Please don't underestimate, ever underestimate, civic middle-class activism. That has been the meat and bread and potatoes of uh, right-wing nationalist politics in this country for the last three or four decades. Um, and it's got us where we are today. Now, that doesn't mean I discount uh, everything David said, actually. I, I think uh, he's got a point about there's certain sections of financial capital. But even there, I would suggest the large financial corporations are certainly not pro-Brexit. The large hedge funds are certainly not pro-Brexit. But there's a lot of um, uh, sort of uh, very rich individual speculators, but also um, sort of, uh, I don't know what you call them, boutiques and, and, you know, firms like that, which have been very prominently involved in funding Brexit um, and, you know, have been actually quite uh, overt in their activism and, and supporting the Brexit party and UKIP and so on. So I mean I I mean while uh, you know there 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 are no doubt strategic divisions within financial capital over exactly how to respond to Brexit. If you look at the hedge funds' um, industrial uh, mouthpieces, they are basically saying we're not ready for this. We don't want to have to leave on these terms. Um, and in fact, I think broadly speaking, they would rather uh, continue within the European Union because it's actually uh, been quite a good. Uh, arrangement for them but there are you know i mean th as it, it, there's always outliers um as in the united states um the anglo-american billionaires are these kind of outlier outlying factors but i would say that the core of it the basis of it is middle class reaction um and that was the same the uh, sort of spinal cord that motivated thatcherism in the first place and if you look at someone like nigel farage who 
essentially was a young fascist who moved into the Conservative Party, supported Mrs. Thatcher. Um, he was very much in favour of the insurgent phase of Thatcherism, um, the, the phase in which the sort of uh, upwardly mobile petty bourgeoisie was uh, taking charge of the state, as, uh, as they saw it, um, and um, felt that it'd be, it had been sold out in its later phase when it became uh, largely pro-European and so on. Um, and he is somebody who, if you follow his career, I think is quite characteristic of the type of personality uh, in the city who would be in favour of Brexit. Uh, he was somebody who worked for the big firms, but he complained that they were becoming too um, uh, sort of controlled, too monotonous, too top-down. He wanted to have the freedom to operate as a gambler in and of himself, someone who could read the waters. In other words, it's that sort of petty bourgeois tradesman-like mentality. I think that's kind of what's going on here. Um, so I, I think you can see this as having different mediations, um, but... Uh, I would be reluctant to um, ascribe a big part of Brexit either to the white working class, as has become the myth in this country, although there's certainly an element of it, or to the capitalist class, although, again, there's an element of that. Could, could I come back in there? Because, I mean, again, actually, I, I think that Rich is pointing in the right direction in terms of talking about the involvement of a bunch of people who are below the level of the super rich in terms of making Brexit a mass project. If, if you're looking at that level, you'll, you'll, find, you'll find the answer to why Brexit was able to win a majority in election. That's where it is. It's not in whether one block of capital or another. But, but the one thing I do want to sort of address, if I can, is, is that I think there's one of the problems we've got on the left right now is there's, there's a kind of fantasy about what happened in 2016, the fantasy about what's going on now, which says, in essence... You know, it doesn't. It won't really make any difference whether they leave the EU or not. It's certainly making a difference to workers' rights, and in any event, um, it's going to be really, really difficult for um, a genuine, a genuine departure to take place because the whole capitalist class is united in favour of um, in favour of staying. Now, I think we we've seen over the last two months. We can see in the next six weeks a test of that because what what is the point of an election? from the perspective of the capitalist class. And by election now, I might mean the election of the leader of the Conservative Party, or by election, I mean um, a general election. And the answer, in short, is, is that elections are the process by which you select who is actually going to govern under capitalism. Now, if, for example, um, Boris Johnson was leaving on a project of hard departure from the EU, which was seriously um, objected to by the majority of the capitalist class or by large enough sections of the capitalist class, you'd see a white-hot fight within the Tory party. You wouldn't see 20 people voting against him on occasion. You'd see half the Tory party voting against him on occasion. And and the answer is, it seems to be pretty clear, that the Boris Johnson deal is a deal which can carry large enough parts of capital to be a majority of the capitalist ruling class. Now, however that deal is assembled, and I think Richard's right, a lot of that's to do with... Um, a layer below the capitalist class, but how that deal was assembled, that deal is, unless Labour wins the election, that is going to be a relatively durable form of rule, and it's going to lead to a a different relationship with the EU, which the majority of British capital can, can make peace with. I, w I wanted to turn the discussion a little bit about towards the... Um, impact of the many unintended consequences of the Brexit um, scenario, and that is the, you know, what Tom Nairn called the breakup of Britain. That is that if Brexit goes through in some way, shape, or form, 
it will likely trigger a new independence referendum in Scotland and the new um, customs barrier or customs border that's going to be implemented between England and um, uh, and Ireland is going to trigger a whole discussion and renewed debate about the question of Irish independence. So I wanted to ask Kat and Richard about what impact the the political impact on the the nature of the UK the Brexit scenario is going to produce. What are the likely um, outcomes of this situation? I think Scotland's relationship to the European Union is quite complicated. Historically, Scotland's actually consensus in the population has always been fairly Eurosceptic up until about a decade ago, about a decade or so ago. Um, so it's actually, I think it's it's complicated, especially the the sort of the way that it's perceived outside of Scotland. So from like the London media, like the liberal media, um, in London and in other bits of the UK, it's seen as you know Scotland is this like cheating on the European Union, uh, you know, <laughs> unanimously in favour of stop Brexit, but actually I think. It's a lot more complicated than that. And um, whilst you know Scotland did technically vote to remain um, in the in the EU referendum itself, that vote took place as part of the United Kingdom. And what I mean by that is not I mean that's the line that that gets used by politicians. I know, but what I mean by that is that Scotland's view on its European Union membership took place while it's still part of Britain. And I know lots of um, left-wing activists or socialists, lots of trade unionists who very reluctantly voted to remain because they're pro-independence. And what that meant for them was that Brussels would provide some kind of buffer to Tory excess in Westminster. That if they were going to be trapped on this island <laughs> as part of Britain, then we really need someone to intervene because you know, <laughs> the are going to be at the helm. <laughs> it's not a, a kind of like genuine Europhile sense of things in Scotland. It's also very much shaped by our parliament. And so like having a Scottish parliament since 97, no, and every single political party in, in the Scottish Parliament was pro-domain. It has bumped up in Scotland in an awkward kind of way because the SNP have ultimately tried to make a grievance out of the fact, but none of that's reflected in the polls. I think the SNP have tried to say, you know, Scotland doesn't want to leave, so that has to be our priority, stopping Brexit for Scotland. Um, and none of that's been borne out in the opinion polls around independence. We're not seeing like a huge surge in support for Scottish independence off the back of the, the EU referendum. It's just not there. Um, the SNP have kind of become the... Um, I've been calling the SNP the middle management tier today. Actually, that's how they operate, is like a sort of very sensible, effective bureaucracy and administration and no, we can't do that because you know the big boss says no. Right? That that is essentially how they're operating now, and that's become quite frustrating. I think that that will play out a little bit in the in the general election. But you know they've become this kind of Nicola Sturgeon in particular has become the kind of the pinup of centrism. 
essentially. Like, the centre ground in politics holds quite strong in Scotland because of the national question. That's inevitably going to be tied into their, the SNP's attitudes towards the European Union. So I think that there's, there's, there's not everyone in Scotland, and I think that there's a sense, even for comrades in England, that, you know, everyone in Scotland is, you know, very pro-European and uh, really happy about that and, you know, wants to be part of Europe. And that's, that's really not the case. Um, so its impact on the independence movement has been strange because as the SNP take this turn to being, you know, the sensible pro-European capitalist internationalist, that the independence movement has become more and more ugly to them. Um, you know, it's become more and more populist. It's character is, you know, is in conflict with the sort of the, the brand image, really, that the SNP want to portray. Um, so it's had a strange impact overall on the, on the independence movement. The SNP don't really want, I mean, we've had the biggest demonstrations in Scottish history on the question of independence in the last year. Had hundreds of thousands of people marching for independence, and there has been no official SNP presence. And these demonstrations haven't been tied into the European Union. And I think that the big danger going forward is that another referendum on Scotland's independence will be tied up to the European question. That's a really dangerous situation, I think, for the independence movement to be in, for the SNP to be in. I think this statistic is something around 38 percent all the SNPs vote in 2015 actually voted to leave the European Union. So it's not a, it's not a tiny group of people. It's, it's a significant group um, who, who feel very strongly about you know, independence and sovereignty in particular. I mean, that would, be, that would be my view, is that if Scotland is to be independent, and it needs to be independent of Brussels just as much as Westminster. Um, as regards... Uh, the Irish question, as it were. Um, I mean, I, I tend to agree with Kat. I think that there's um, an overestimation of the role of pro-European sentiment, largely because there isn't much of it. Um, there is a Remain hardcore, but it's, uh, you know, and they're very visible. You know, you've got EU Supergirl coming out on the demonstrations. Uh, I'm not <laughs> making that up. Um, this, of course uh, not. This it's, is too, their idea. it's too ridiculous not to be real. Of course. <laughs> well, so essentially their idea of winning popular support is to emulate Fathers for Justice, um, a movement which you probably don't know about in the US, thank God. But um, in uh, the British context, I think it's true to say that uh, feelings about Brexit um, where they're not driven by right-wing nationalism are dr- largely aversive. It's largely not because everybody loves the European Union. It's largely because we can see who's organising Brexit and what for um, and uh, what it's going to do to us. So this is the basis upon which um, opposition to Brexit exists. In Northern Ireland, I think a lot of people uh, sort of have a broad sense that you know, they know what side of uh, their bread is buttered, as it were. Um, if you want to get um, investment in, you know, like some local infrastructure, quite often that funding will come out of the European purse. Now, that doesn't um, reflect, you know, brilliantly on the European Union because the money actually comes from the uh, UK Treasury. Um, but um, so it's just redistribution of funds uh, within a, a sort of a project uh, agreed by the British government anyway. 
but nonetheless there was um there was an element of that there was also an element of um uh wanting to avoid precisely the kind of crisis uh for the union um that has actually been um sort of become very clear in the context of um uh, the Brexit negotiations but i would say that even if there is a customs border in the irish sea um and northern ireland is sort of separated by custom borders on both sides as it were that isn't the main factor that's going to drive the breakup of the united kingdom or the reunification of ireland um these processes have been underway for a long time uh, in northern ireland the dominance of unionism was predicated on the idea that the british state actually wanted the north of ireland to remain a part of it um nobody can really believe that anymore it's become increasingly clear certainly that the brexit right would be happy to give up northern ireland so it's been regarded as uh, a thorn in the side i think um for a few decades that hence you know the the unionists and the loyalists in northern ireland have been well ahead of the curve on this um betrayal narrative they've been getting betrayed since 1970s <laughs> um so um you know and th- that's what they fully expect uh but their dominion uh, sorry i should say their hegemony within uh northern ireland this little statelet uh, has been running down for some time demographic changes are are making the difference the peace is making the difference um uh, economic circumstances um, is making the difference to some degree um and I, i think just younger people tend to have much more socially liberal attitudes than their forebears uh nobody wants to go back to war well some people actually do want to go back to war let's be clear about that but um the younger people tend to um uh want to escape from it and that's why at the moment I don't know what the exact figure is but I think it was something like 2/3 of uh young people of student age leave Northern Ireland every year. Um uh, and you know they fl- flee to uh, the mainland or to various parts of the commonwealth um uh because there's literally nothing going on um uh, if you're a young person in Northern Ireland. Uh, that's a bit harsh actually. There there's some nice parts of it but it's a very poor uh sort of six counties. um it's got the highest rates of poverty um in the united kingdom i think um and it would e- it would be even worse actually if it weren't for the fact that the british state still extends certain material incentives to northern ireland such as the fact that you don't have council tax in northern ireland um such as the fact that water uh, i think is still covered by the rates that you pay rather than being privatized and things like that i mean obviously these things are subject to ongoing struggle and renegotiation but northern ireland has had certain material incentives to remain politically pliable those might actually disappear um in the sort of context of a post brexit situation um i think that the usefulness of the union um to the british state and particularly to um the conservative party is uh, fast running out um and it would be um you know reduced even more i think if scotland were to go independent um so you know the, these are long term t- trends the british nation state has had two major reasons for existing one was uh it was an empire for a period of time it was at the center of a global empire um and you know uh, scotland and the north of ireland played their role fulsomely in that um and uh you know with the loss of empire it became a sort of national capitalist welfare state uh, and that's been disintegrating so it's not very clear any longer what the point of the british state is other than as a hub 
for multinationals and for American least trident nuclear missiles. So that's where we're at. <laughs> I was agreeing with this idea of the British state is riddled with crisis. There is a particular trajectory to it. With the election coming up, this is the huge bind that Corbyn finds himself in. And like the left and Scotland who is supporting him and the working class in Scotland that's backing Corbyn is that even if Corbyn becomes Prime Minister, he still inherits these problems. And sort of doing steer quotes around problems, like the problem of Scotland, the problem of Northern Ireland, he still inherits a United Kingdom that is riddled with crisis around constitutional and democratic issues. And the Labour Party have been pretty much silent on that. There isn't really as much of a Brexit grievance um, in Scotland as you would think that's playing into support for, for independence. I mean, it's undeniable that Scotland's institutions have just been routinely ignored since that vote took place. None of our democratic institutions have been consulted and it, is that, it becomes increasingly obvious every single day that it's not a, it's not a kingdom of equal. And I think that that's going to be a massive challenge for, for Corbyn if he if he becomes prime minister, is to really start addressing these, these issues. All right. Well, a follow-up from what Richard and Kat were just saying about the what you could call an organic crisis of the British state posed by Brexit, posed by its history, posed by Scotland, and now Ireland is – that that's not just going to be a crisis for the British state. It's going to be a geopolitical crisis that involves many international institutions, namely NATO, the European Union, and the the UN itself, and the structure of the Security Council. So, you know, for James and David, what what are the geopolitical implications of this logic of Brexit and what it does to the crisis of the British state? We start off with NATO then. I mean, NATO's an interesting one because historically the SNP has been something of a pacifist uh, organisation. was certainly anti-NATO uh, up until relatively recently. And that ended in 2012 where they were convinced with some very dubious polling evidence the public would not back independence if Scotland was not a member of NATO. Um, so, in a sense, it's an easier question than once it was, except for the fact of what Richard mentioned, which is trying nuclear weapons, because NATO is fundamentally a nuclear-armed alliance, um, and there's really nowhere else in the United Kingdom that these missiles could be situated. So, if the SNP wants to continue to be a party opposed to nuclear weapons, but it also wants to be a member of NATO, and there's a major crunch coming. That's not just a crunch for the SNP, it's a crunch for NATO itself, and the whole kind of relationship of Euro-America, the Transatlantic Alliance, um, and its relationship with Russia, uh, because these play a strategic role, right? and what role Scotland's going to play in that is actually more important than you would imagine for being such a small in terms of the EU, again, superficially, it looks like it's a simple question um, because Scotland voted uh, by a large majority, um, probably has increased since then, remaining part of the European Union. And, well, Britain looks like it might go in another direction. We still don't know exactly what's going on three years down in the line. The 
the problems start to arise, though, when you look at how um, the European structures have responded to the extreme uh, violence and repression that has taken place in Catalonia, and the way that they have largely always backed up the Spanish state, no matter what. Once you've taken that in a certain direction, for a certain amount of time, it becomes quite difficult. Uh, it becomes a sort of path-dependent type of situation where you have to keep supporting the, the Spanish state in whatever it desires. Now, if the EU were to let Scotland in easily post-independence, that would fundamentally create a rupture and an antagonism mm -hmm. with Spain. Um, and Spanish consent is required, almost certainly, for that to take place. And that, again, raises a fundamental question about what the European Union is. Mm -hmm. We used to say it was the Europe of the regions, the Europe of small nations, and so on and so forth. Increasingly, it has become the Europe of big business centred overwhelmingly in Germany, France, to an extent, the UK, and so on and so forth. And these kind of smaller uh, nations have had less of a look in. You look at what happened to Greece and so on. So that will pose a fundamental question as to what it is the European Union stands for if that were to take place. It's not just about the nature of Britain. Lastly, most, perhaps most interestingly, is the United Nations, because uh, this is not an, an element that's often considered, but back in 2014, when it looked like Scotland might go independent, Argentina was pushing to have the United Kingdom pushed off the UN Security Council. And this gets to the heart of why it is, I support Scottish independence, because fundamentally, Britain has been the client state par excellence of the United States of America and its imperial ambitions. Um, and getting in the United Kingdom off the Security Council, I think, would be a great thing for world peace and for progressive movement worldwide. And I want to see someone from the Global South. I mean, there are a lot of dodgy characters in the Global South, don't get me wrong, but, um, <laughs> but frankly, almost anyone to me seems better. Um, so there's a major antagonism is going to be in terms of geopolitics if we have the breakup of Britain, what's happening in uh, Scotland, but also I think in Ireland as well. I, I, I don't know what would happen if um, Britain got divided into um, pieces. I mean, certainly one of the possible outcomes would simply be that the seat would transfer to um, England, and I think you'd have to say that's more than 50% likely. But where I do strongly agree with James, and perhaps maybe I'd even go further than him, is 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 I think we really need to think through what he's saying about Catalonia. Um, mm. A whole part of the SNP strategic thinking is well, it's not the whole part, but it's a major part of it is that Scotland can stay in the European Union um, at the moment to which um, the rest of Britain leaves, because just obviously the rest of the EU would like that, and it'd be a way of um, cocking a snook at Britain. Um, I think anyone who just assumes that would be obvious or easy has no sense at all of how the national debate's gone in the European Union, no sense at all of what's happened in Spain, no sense at all of how easy it would be for, for example, Spain to um, to simply veto that happening. So, you know, one of the possibilities we could easily be looking at in 12 months' time is, for example, let's just say that even if the SM, let's just say even if the future pound is kind of the SNP's kind of hoping and predicting, you know, firstly, uh, a hated um, Johnson government, secondly, a move for independence and a vote for independence, there's absolutely no guarantee that that would um, necessarily at all translate to continued membership of the EU. And I'd have to say my own hunch for what it's worth is that, that much more likely would be a period of Scotland having to apply for membership 
and a five or ten year delayed and a limbo. So, you know, I mean, certainly in England, we kind of feel like we're trapped in Brexit politics for a much longer time than we'd like to be. But maybe, you know, that's just as true um, in Scotland as well. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to say um, is, is, in a sense, the question, would the EU survive Brexit? Um, and I think the answer has to be yes. You know, there might have been a time, say, around 2016, when, it, when there was all this rise of nationalist parties and it looked like the EU, um, having such a large power as Britain voting to leave would be, just be a major blow to European integration. Um, I think how this process is viewed from Paris, from Berlin and so on, is the British have made such a monstrously bad deal of negotiating the terms of our exit. We made ourselves look so absolutely incompetent <laughs> that the number of people in the rest of the EU actually um, angling for departure has shrunk. And, you know, if you want, I could I could describe how, you know, particularly that happened say, in the last French presidential election. You had a far-right candidate. Part of her programme was to leave the EU week by week in the election that started off as leave the EU then it became leave the monetary project and bit by bit it got diluted because it was tanking as a process in the polls the, the number of people in the rest of Europe who are looking at how England Britain call, let's say call it England is negotiating thinking wow they're playing a blinder let's copy that there's really very very few people thinking that much of my academic work is concentrated on this question right now so um, it's something that I have been considering there's a couple of things I would say. I mean, I absolutely agree with the analysis of what we said there. That is precisely what's happening. We've seen a movement away from sort of integration as changes in the European Union um, towards a situation where you're more Eurosceptic uh, traditionally um, leaderships are, in a sense, they are trying to appeal more to a European demos, the calling for reform of the European Union and so on and so forth. What's happening in response to that is that the populist right, I believe, is becoming increasingly integrated into the structure of the European Union. Mm -hmm. You see that from the fact that the European Commission, which is the most uh, supranational of all the EU's parts, is coming out with things like the European Way of Life discourse to describe migration, which is obviously like a dog whistle idea that is appealing to the populist right. Interestingly, uh, the European Commission president that proposed that was initially proposed by Emmanuel Macron, but only got in thanks to the votes of Viktor Orban from Hungary. Um, so what you are seeing is a much more complicated picture in terms of European politics. Now, my fear is, you're absolutely right because of the absolute mess that Britain has made trying to leave. But I do feel, if you look back to the situation that Greece found itself in when they tried to have a progressive government uh, with Syriza, the fact that countries are convinced that they cannot leave the European Union, the fact they don't have that ultimate out that they need to, that ultimate threat of leaving, I think will drive the European Union in a more reactionary and neoliberal direction. They'll try to incorporate the populist right into its discourses that we've already seen. They'll also tell the left, well, if you don't like it, there's nothing you can do. Um, and this is my worry. If Britain is not able to leave, this is precisely the mood that is going to enter European politics. Well, I'd like to go back. You know, earlier you were saying, I don't want to make too many comparisons to U.S. politics. However, the most apparent one between what happened in the U.K. in 2016 and what happened in the U.S. in 2016 is the question of how the media narrative shaped the vote. Because, you know, in the U.K. there was not only just people talking about the shapes of bananas on question time, 
but you know tabloid conservative tabloids very aggressive like the sun and the daily mail very aggressively going against the eu when they had historically not done so but i wanted to also talk about that narrative in terms of the connections between people who are in government and people who are journalists because boris johnson old etonian and former journalist, has a lot of personal connections to people in the media, and clearly he knows how to not answer a question and get away with it. Um, can you talk about how those personal networks, which I will say definitely exist in the U.S., but are perhaps more hidden, uh, have influenced how Brexit has played out in the public consciousness? I mean, certainly it's it's very clear that Boris Johnson um, is very good at, um, he's a very good career politician. Um, he's built up a lot of uh, networks with uh, journalists and so on, um, and uh, spent a long time as, uh, I believe, the editor of The Spectator, which is a, a, an outpost of the conservative right, and is now has the Daily Telegraph as essentially his um, public leaking post. Um, he can sort of propose anything he likes and the Telegraph will praise it to the heavens. Uh, there is all that. Um, and there is also, it must be said, um, that the uh, prior to the fact that Brexit became mainstream conservative policy, which it wasn't before 2016, there were a number of uh, sort of networks of journalists and so on um, who for various reasons, were puffing uh, the political forces of Nigel Farage and the UK Independence Party. Um, some of them uh, were um, people who were basically pro-UKIP. You know, you have uh, elements of the British press that are like that, particularly the Richard Desmond press. Um, uh, some of them were sort of uh, right-wing Tories who were tolerant of um, uh, Farage and UKIP because they believed that it would push David Cameron to the right, which, of course, they were not wrong about. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it has to be said that quite apart from networks and quite apart from, um, you know, the, the connections uh, that individuals have, like Farage has got lots of um, friends and, you know, he always complains about the political class and their mates in the media. He's very well connected uh, to a certain section of the media. Uh, however, quite apart from that, uh, the main motivation, I believe, for the press to and the national uh, broadcasters to have played the role that they did in 2016 and before was because uh, they were convinced at a certain stage, um, shortly after the credit crunch, um, and you saw these arguments playing out in the BBC, that the next big thing was a revolt of the white working class. Now, I don't think it's coincidental that that was a highly conservative response to um, the possibility of class politics. You can only acknowledge class if it's racialized in that way. Um, but they were all convinced. And when Nigel Farage stood up and said um, in the aftermath of the collapse of the fascist BNP, started moving into in post-industrial northern towns and cities, and he said, we are now the voice of the, the, the abandoned, forgotten, labor-voting, white working class. And he used a scandal of child sex abuse, um, which the national media erroneously claimed was a particular problem of Pakistani men. 
to say that Labour had sacrificed the innocence of white children on the altar of multiculturalism. The media bought this hook, line and sinker. They entirely bought the idea that Farage and UKIP represented the white working class and that they represented particularly the Labour voting white working class. And every single survey has shown this to be flatly false. Not that he can't get working class voters, and they would predominantly be white. Um, He has got some. Um, but the core of UKIP vote has always been middle class. The core of UKIP leadership has always been middle class. And it's always been overwhelmingly ex-Tories who are voting for them. So this was a myth, but it was a myth that was very efficacious. It did a number of things. First of all, it rattled the Labour leadership. They bought it and they decided that they weren't going to criticise uh, UKIP on immigration, the number one issue they were using to polarise politics. Um, and second of all, um, it, uh, you know, pushed the Conservative Party to the right on this issue because, of course, um, you know, the Conservative Party uh, had more to fear electorally from them. And thirdly, the result of that was that the media reflected a bipartisan consensus. You know, the the only d- debate that was really happening was how horrible can we be about immigration? How harsh can we be about how much uh, we want, you know, how, how much we want to screw immigrants over. Um, and that became uh, the quality of the national debate. I regret to say that to this day, because of a compromise that uh, Corbyn made shortly after the Brexit vote, uh, that Labour remains uh, timid and defensive over this issue and has refused to uh, seriously contest, notwithstanding Corbyn's personal credentials on race and immigration, but they have refused as a party to seriously contest uh, the narrative that immigration is a problem and that something has to be done about it. Um, and mm-hmm. the result is that, um, you know, the uh, Corbyn's class narrative is going to work very well, but the forces of um, reactionary nationalism are incredibly strong and not really effectively challenged. Sorry, that's not quite the question you asked, was it? But anyway. <laughs> I would be interested to know the media narrative in Ireland or Scotland, like how that filtered down. So I guess my orientation on that question is... Um, to an extent, I don't think we should be surprised that the media is uh, dominated by, you know, right-wing narratives, by conservatism, um, by the also the neoliberal narratives of much of the billionaire owners of the uh, the press establishment and so on. What I've found disappointing in the course of all this debate, um, although I mean I I, I I agree with much of uh, what Richard said in terms of. Uh, rise of the nationalist right and so on and so forth. But there's an extent also in which we've got more progressive forces in a stronger position in the United Kingdom than we have had in many, many decades. We have a left-wing leadership of the Labour Party in England, uh, largely in England, I would say. Um, in Scotland, you have, well, I mean, to an extent, you have a centrist leadership of Scottish nationalism, but underlying that, a sort of left nationalist um, social movement that is pulling hundreds of thousands of people onto the streets. And perhaps most surprisingly of all, I mean, I've been a lifelong supporter of Irish unification. But the fact that this is now something that looks like a viable possibility, I never thought that was something that I would see in my lifetime. Now, the fact is that you have this sort of weird situation where we have all these viable forces of progress to an extent we might not have been envisaged. Uh, in the past, and yet nonetheless they have no representation, I would argue, seriously, in much of the media at all. 
in Scotland, we have one newspaper that is pro-independence. I don't think you've got any newspapers that are seriously pro-Jeremy Corbyn in any respect whatsoever. The so-called liberal press and Guardian and the Independent and so on have largely run mm. a continuous mm. cultural war to remove uh, Jeremy Corbyn from his position one way or the other since he was uh, first elected. Both their editors and to a large extent most of their commentators as well. And as for the Irish situation, it's not much better either. So um, it's the absence of these types of networks uh, for the progressive movements uh, that do exist, I think, in the United Kingdom today is the most truly disappointing. We don't have those connections. Although worryingly, I would say one thing that's happening with the Scottish independence movement, which I fully support, is that you have this weird situation where much of the centrist commentators that continue to dominate uh, the media narrative, even if they don't have much influence in actual politics, these kind of people are very pro-Nicola Sturgeon, very pro-continuity of SNP dominance in Scotland, and very anti-independence. So they do not want rupture, they want continuity, they want the same over and over again, and they want someone who will reliably um, ensure that for them. And Nicola Sturgeon really is that candidate. So she is very well connected personally. Um, with much of the media establishment, but Scottish independence continues to encounter significant hostility as a principle. Maybe if I could just say a couple of things, if you don't mind. Um, I mean, I think it's right to talk about um, the obstacles of, of the lack of left-wing voices in the media, but it, I want to if I can about two things which which point in a slightly more optimistic direction. I, and I think when before we came in here, we, a few of us were chatting, and I said I was going to be the least optimistic person in the room. But maybe as we're getting to, nearer to the end, it might be might be worth saying a couple of things which are a bit more positive. Um, look, the first thing is about the media. It's right that in terms of conventional media, the spaces for the left are no greater than they were um, in any relevant way since since Corbyn came in. But on the other hand, we have to remember that the whole thing that's been going on with the media is the transition away from essentially um, everyone's access to information being solely mediated through very, very large, very, very old, very traditional companies with lots of capital towards the rise of new social media. Now, in the right circumstances, that can be um, absolutely associated with the change in people's attitudes. And we saw that in the 2017 election, that, you know, if you looked at the 50 most read articles during that election by any objective measure, only one of the 50 was on old media, 49 were on new media, and something like 47 of them were articles which were pro-Jeremy Corbyn. It's, it's one of the reasons why Labour was able to turn around what seemed to be an absolutely chasming poll deficit. It's because actually it didn't matter that The Guardian um, or The Telegraph or The Independent weren't opening their columns up to serious numbers of leftists because that opinion was still out there and people were still finding other ways of reading it. So Again, this isn't to idealise um, social media, new media. I mean, we've got Richard in here, and I'm sure he could happily talk for a whole hour about the hell that's Twitter. Um, but, you know, the, the, re- the reality is it does provide certain openings. And the other thing I want to talk about, if I can, just really dead briefly, one of the strange things, um, Richard's talked about the big spike of racism in the, in the first half of, of the last decade. But, of course, one of the things which happened after 2016 is if you look at opinion polls, you look at how people thought that there are all these questions you can ask to try and work out, is someone a racist? You can go, you start off saying, are you a racist? And obviously not very many people say yes. So then you say, right. would, would you be OK if your daughter married someone different race? Would you be OK if you lived well, surrounded by people of different race? How many friends have you got? You ask all these questions to try and tease out. 
how serious about, uh, people are about living together and about opposing racism. And the truth is, in all those measures, there's been a massive switch towards anti-racist opinion since the referendum. Now, we could get mm. into why and what that really represents, but it represents something and something real, so much so that, you know, if you ask people in Britain those questions, you ask those questions around the whole European Union. Right now, Britain is 15 points ahead by by some way the most anti-racist country in the European Union. Um, there are some ironies here. There are some paradoxes here. But there's undoubtedly a process so that if, for example, you know, in this election campaign it's coming, Corbyn was to acquire a backbone, if Diane Abbott was to acquire a backbone, and they would stand up to the people within the Labour camp saying we've got to be against free movement, you know, there is, there is a swell of opinion involving millions and millions of people that wants to see that happen. In many ways, the, the Brexit impasse has paralysed British politics at the formal level for several years now with a deadlock um, uh, at the top of society. But as you both were describing, there's an undercurrent of radicalization and potentiality on the left that's both you can see it in the potential of the election, but also developments like Extinction Rebellion and some some level of increased trade union activity. So I was wondering if you each wanted to comment in your last contributions about what what could break out of the impasse uh, that, that British politics has been in and, and what what forces and dynamics do you look to and point to as sources for hope? If there's hope, it lies with the unknown. Um, that's the uh, big thing with this election, uh, is that so much of it is unknown. The polls are completely unreliable because they're not built for a period of political volatility. We don't know uh, how much Labour's uh, prospectus, which looks to be more radical than 2017, will cut through with the electorate. We don't know how much um, uh, the Brexit culture wars has changed the uh, dynamics, the calculations in this country. We don't know uh, how much um, uh, Joe Swinson's sort of centre-right liberal democratic strategy um, is going to uh, realign British politics. Um, there's a lot of unknowns um, uh, so uh, there's there's a degree of uh, hope to be had in that because it means that certain things are probably wide open. Uh, one thing that can be said, I mean, I, I'm I'm uh, you know typically pessimistic about uh, politics in Britain. Um, uh, one area in which I remain rather pessimistic is that the trade union movement hasn't shown much sign of growth. Um, uh, or um, sort of increased militancy over the years in which Corbyn has been a Labour leader. Um, and in fact, uh, the sort of union density and so on um, appears to have continued to decline and strike rates remain fairly flat overall. There are local areas of, uh, you know, militancy, particularly, I mean, we're now seeing the UCU is going to go out and strike. There's been uh, industrial action by McDonald's workers and so on, but it's very localised. But what is happening uh, is that because of the fragility and the crises of the institutions, um, the left is coming out of recession. It's having been in recession for decades, it's now coming out of recession. And, uh, you know, something... 
I mean, Corbyn talked about building a social movement. Uh, I don't think that's the sort of thing you can build, unfortunately. It happens or it doesn't. But something is happening. Something is fizzing away. When Labour announced uh, the appeal for uh, election funds, they got record amounts of funds within 12 hours. Um, They got massive numbers of volunteers going out to help. Um, It's very possible, um, because we saw in 2017 the first euphoric stirrings of a new and better nation, which is uh, only one half of the nation, to be fair, Um, but we saw it then. We saw the possibilities of it. It's very possible that this election will confirm a a further shift in that direction. It's also possible, of course, there will be a catastrophe that will end up bracketing Corbynism as just one moment of crisis and confirm sort of nationalist reaction in power for uh, a short while to come. But um, one thing that we can say uh, for absolute certain um, is that these crisis tendencies that are underway... Um, which are not just rooted in the British nation state, by the way, but also in, you know, very deep problems in British capitalism and indeed in global capitalism. And there's going to be further recessions and so on. One thing we can say is that this crisis has got a long way to go yet. And that, well, should Corbynism win an election, that will become a problem for us. Listen, Corbyn did so brilliantly in 2017 because of jobs and housing. There are millions of young people whose lives under neoliberalism just are, they've got to stay um, living with their parents way past 30, their jobs are rubbish and their housing conditions are worse than their parents' generations. All those people saw Corbyn and they saw him as standing up for them. If Labour can recreate that, then you know, um, th- you know, there are ways in which Labour can do well enough in selection so as to either get into power or at least severely limit Boris Johnson's ability to make um, havoc for the rest of us. I do feel that we might look back on this period of history and think this was our moment and we blew it. You know what I mean? The conditions to me seem to be relatively good compared to anything I've seen in my lifetime. I've mentioned some of them in terms of the prospects for the break of Britain, the um, left wing or some would say socialist uh, leadership of the Labour Party in England. Uh, significantly mobilised movement around that, but add into all that, right, the fact that you have a fundamental cleavage between the, the British capitalism and its traditional ideological and political representation in terms of the Conservative Party. In a lot of respects, this seems to be the fundamental condition of the rupture that many of us have spent our entire political lives wishing for. And yet it seems like at this moment, perhaps due to what has been called neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, we just haven't got that ability to become, you know, to take on that subjective factor, become a political agency in order to complete the breakup of Britain and install, uh, hopefully, a Jeremy Corbyn government. Which I, I, I still think that there is every possibility that these things will come to fruition. Oddly enough, my biggest optimism tends to come from America, and I'm sure you will disagree with me on this. <laughs> I do think like, there is great optimism in the fact that you have a confusion emerging between people who support Bernie Sanders and people who support Elizabeth Warren, because there is a fundamental ideological debate there about what it is the left should represent. Is it there for class struggle by getting into power, or is it there to try and ameliorate social differences? And this is a very traditional debate on the left. I think it's very healthy that 
masses of people are engaging in that campaign now in the United States, thanks to the uh, presidential election that's going on. And my ultimate optimism comes from the fact that I do think it is important that we reach beyond metropolitan London, New York, etc., etc., mm-hmm. and try and win back bases of people who have been traditionally all sometimes of the far left. Or that book, What's the Matter with Kansas by Thomas Frank, that I sometimes think of, and try to re radicalize these places, not necessarily by going out there, but by having an ideological impact on I think I read Eric Blanc on the teacher strikes that were going on in America. And one of the points he made is that the people that were playing a leading role in these things that were going on in red states was the, was the people who had been behind the Bernie Sanders campaign. And hopefully this is what we start to see uh, in the United Kingdom in terms of what Richard is talking about. Because I agree with him. Ultimately, it is the recession in terms of the trade unions, historically. Uh, that continues to be the underlying political problem. But perhaps the political radicalization that is going on um, is going to be the thing that can finally kick those trade unions back into gear. And, you know, these are the real forces of progress that we need to look to. All right. That's a very excellent, hopeful note to end on. So thank you so much. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 